Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host. I'm very happy to be with you again and uh, happy to have all these people uh, ready to talk about some uh, uh, interesting things from Revelation again. And as you know, uh, we are um, studying the book of Revelation for this series. And uh, welcome to our program. I would like to just um, quickly introduce uh, our uh, panel. And uh, I will start with Lija here. Lija, thank you for coming with us. It's a privilege to be here. And also Ken, good to have you back again. Thank you, Nick. Great to be here. We have uh, Harvey there. Uh, thank you, Harvey, for coming. Greetings all. And Len, thank you for uh, preparing the um, study again, and I will uh, hand the microphone right to you. Hello, listeners. I hope you enjoyed last week's study, although it um, came out in holiday time. And uh, at that particular time, we presented to you an introduction to the book of Revelation, which, of course, is the last book in the Bible. The book was a message given by God to the Apostle John while he was imprisoned on the island of Patmos. John was the same person who was one of the twelve disciples, I should say, who accompanied Jesus. The full title of Revelation is given in the very first verse, which says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the first four books of the New Testament are a revelation of Jesus who demonstrated to the world what God is like. However, this book, Revelation, is different. It reveals events leading up to the second coming of Jesus and about him, not as a humble servant, but as King of kings and Lord of lords. It also reveals just a little of what happens after the actual physical return of Jesus. Although Revelation uses many symbols to convey meanings, it's an exciting book, and we hope you will follow these thrilling studies as they are presented week by week. And today, we're going to do mostly from the second chapter of Revelation, and the title of today's study is Among the Lampstands. But before we start, I would like to pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to open your holy word today and to share it with the listeners. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will teach us what we ought to know and what the listeners ought to understand. May this study be to your honour and glory and to the benefit of those who listen to this program. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ken. Revelation is prophecy. What is prophecy? Well, then, prophecy has a number of meanings, especially in the book of Revelation here. One is it's foretelling the future, uh, future events. And at this particular time in world affairs, this is really, really interesting because there's so much happening in the world. And Revelation is telling us beforehand what is about to happen and the events leading up to the return of Jesus Also, it explains more deeply the Word of God, certain things that God wants us to know and understand and abide by. Okay. Well, now, Pledger, would you mind reading for us, please, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, 
your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. All right, now we'll leave that last little bit. But John says he was on the island of Patmos. He was a prisoner. But what sort of prisoner was he, Lydia? What had he done wrong, for example? Actually, he hasn't done anything wrong. He was imprisoned just because he was different than others, just because of his faithfulness to the gospel and to the Lord God. Yeah, I think the uh, modern expression for that is that he was a prisoner of conscience because he refused to do something which was probably accepted back in those times by the majority of people. Harvey, in that verse that Ledger read, John gives two reasons why he was exiled to Patmos. What are they? Yes, they were the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And what's that? Now, the word of God is actually a holy scriptures, we could say what God says and the testimony of Jesus was the story of Jesus basically John had accompanied Jesus over three and a half years and so he was just saying what he had observed what he had witnessed and that went against the way the Romans believed because they believed in Caesar worship or ruler worship sort of thing so it meant that they were not pleased when this alternative worship method came up and so he was exiled to Patmos which was not a nice place to be. Yeah I'd just like to expand on that a little bit. The Christians in those days faced serious challenges. Several cities set up what's called what, uh, emperor worship in their temples as a token of their loyalty to Rome. Emperor worship became compulsory. Citizens also were expected to participate in public events and pagan religious ceremonies, which John, of course, couldn't do. Because many Christians refused to participate in these practices, they faced trials and, at times, even martyrdom. Commissioned by Christ, John wrote the seven messages to help believers deal with these challenges. Ken, John gives three factors linking his experience with that of other believers. What are they? Well, John talks about, straight out of the Gospel, of course, the suffering, which uh, many people had to go through back in those days and may be repeated in the future. He talks about the kingdom of God, what that will be like when it's here. And he talks about patient endurance, which all Christians will have to face from the past times until present times. So there's a number of things there that will be repeated that has been in the scriptures beforehand. And of course, it has been repeated many, many times. If you read about the uh, Christian martyrs through the dark and middle ages, it wasn't just one or two, it was millions and millions and millions. And there are people right now imprisoned because of their belief in the Bible and they will not accept what was popular or what is popular in some of those countries. 
You can actually go on a website and you can see the countries don't um, put up with religious tolerance. Harvey, can you name any others through history who had to endure hardship because of their faithfulness to God and his word? Yeah, I'll limit it because there are plenty. Daniel was one. The three, three friends of Daniel, the worthies we call them, three worthies, Joseph, Job, Stephen, Paul, all the other apostles and martyrs down through history. But that's like the tip of an iceberg. There's just so many of them. But they all had to stand up for their faith at the peril of their lives, the whole lot of them. It's a situation which showed that they really believed what they believed because they would not be willing to do that unless they fully were committed to the cause. Yes, I actually find it really puzzling why civil authorities would punish a person who has not committed a crime but thinks differently to the majority of people at the day. And Len, just uh, on that aspect, even though uh, back in those days, you know, there were different forms of uh, government, could be, you know, like authoritative, you know, dictatorship uh, and so many other forms. We're living today in uh, so-called democracy. And um, one of the most important things in, in, in democracy is the freedom of speech or the freedom of worship, if you like. And still, we have so many people suffering because of their beliefs and suffering today. And we can give examples even if we go to, uh, let's say, uh, believers in China, for example, underground churches. They are in prison right now and many other places of, uh, on this earth. And even in a Western society, if you are standing bold to speak the truth of the Bible, you'll be ostracized. Mm. You'll be, in a form or the other, you'll still be mistreated. Yes, it's, it's just a strange thing. Lydia, to add to this, I know that you have something to share with us. The followers of Christ should never forget that whenever they find themselves in circumstances similar to those of John, they are not left alone. The same Jesus who come to John with the words of hope and encouragement in the midst of his hardship on, on Patmos, still is present with his people to sustain and support them in their difficult situations. Mm. All right, well, let's move on. Ken, would you read Revelation chapter 1, verse 10? So we're reading from the uh, King James Version, and uh, Revelation 1, chapter 10 I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Harvey, when is the Lord's day? Unlike what many people believe today, the Lord's day is Saturday, the Sabbath. And there are many indications of that in scripture. It's certainly not Sunday as most people believe. There's now, now, in Exodus... Sorry. Yes, yes, I was going to say... Can you support that statement from the scripture? Well, there's a number of texts that we'll read. I'll read Exodus 31, verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, 
for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. So is that it? Nick, have you got one? As Harvey just pointed out, there are so many verses in the Bible which can support this, but uh, I'm going to read from uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, and I'm reading from New King James, um, which simply just says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Oh, well, um, here it's saying that he's claiming the Sabbath for himself. Ken, I believe you've got a text that you can share with the folk today. Okay, again, we're reading from the King James Version. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So where's that from, Ken? That's from uh, Mark 2 and verse 28. Okay, so we have already three texts that say that um, the Sabbath is the Lord's day. I want to read you one more. It's from Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 13. And it says this. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath to delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not doing your, going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, and then it goes on. So twice in that text, the Sabbath is identified as the Lord's Day. Now, Ledger, isn't Sunday the Lord's Day because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday? No, definitely no. This is a counterfeit. But the best explanation for the Lord's Day in Revelation uh, 1.10 is that John was referring to the seventh-day Sabbath. Uh, while the exact phrase the Lord's Day is never used elsewhere in the New Testament or in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, many strong equivalents refer to the seventh-day Sabbath. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord, thy God. We can find texts in Exodus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 5, 14, and actually is referring the Lord often refers to the seventh day as my Sabbath. We can find these verses in Exodus 31 verse 12, 13, Leviticus 19 verse 3 and 30, Leviticus 26 verse 2, Isaiah 56, 4 to 6, Ezekiel 20, 12, 13, 16, 20, 21, 24, and chapter 22 from 3 to 8, and chapter 23 starting with 36 to 38, and in chapter 44 starting with verse 12 till 24. Actually, in the Hebrew of Isaiah 58 and 13, Yahweh which is the Lord God, calls the Sabbath my holy day. And finally, we can find in all uh, the three synoptic uh, Gospels, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27 and 28, and in Luke chapter 6, verse 5, where um, Jesus is quoting, uh, saying that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
It would be strange, therefore, if John used the phrase the Lord's Day for any other day of the week than the one which we call Saturday. Yeah, I just want to also uh, bring something else here because this is a topic which we need the, the whole program to just talk about uh, the Sabbath day and Lord's Day. If we simply just look for these verses which we refer to, people may say Sabbath. When the Bible is talking about Sabbath, in the original, uh, the meaning of the word is rest. And um, people are resting on Sunday and saying that's our Sabbath because we are resting on Sunday. But it's very important to notify that even in, as uh, Len, you read uh, in um, Isaiah and there are some other parts in the Bible when God is connecting that rest day with the seventh day because in the Old Testament when God gave to the Israelites um, rules and regulations and commandments, he was very specific about the seventh day which refer to rest. And that's why I want to just make clear that it's true that Sabbath in itself, the word Sabbath means only rest, doesn't mean seven day. But if we look in the context of the Bible, we'll find out that the Sabbath is the seven day. Right, okay. Yeah, well, there's plenty of evidence as we've just demonstrated from the Bible that the Lord's day is the Sabbath. There is no evidence whatsoever to suggest that the Lord's Day is Sunday. And the many assumptions are made from this text which we had from Revelation where people say, there you are, the Lord's Day is Sunday, but there's no backup for that. But there is plenty of evidence to say that the Lord's Day is Sabbath. Harvey, would you read Revelation chapter 1 verse 11, please? Sure saying, and I think we have to go back a little bit into the previous text because it says I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, to Smyrna to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So why was this message to be sent to all those churches, although, as we'll learn a little bit later, there were specific messages for specific churches. But the messages, to the letter that God instructed John to write was to be sent to all seven of them. Why? What, what was in that that was particularly pertinent to them? I think it's a little bit like a class in school. After you've finished, say, a year or half a year, you get sent a report card. And I suppose, in a way, this was God's report card to the churches, to the seven churches, each of the seven churches in Asia Minor that are mentioned. And so it was like God giving them a report card. It goes on, and I'm sure we'll discuss it anyway, but it spoke about the positives and the negatives. Actually, there were, however, more than seven churches in Asia Minor, but the spiritual condition in those churches parallels the spiritual conditions of Christianity in the different historical periods from the time of John until today. So, 
embedded in these messages to seven historical churches was a grand survey of the major uh, developments of Christian history. And these periods are briefly discussed in the specific comments on each church in this lesson today. Okay, thank you. Well, you've sort of uh, partly answered the next question I was going to ask. And Harvey, this is a follow-on from what you were already saying. These churches, these seven churches, and you read the names of them, were they literal, symbolic, or both? I think very definitely they were both. They were literal churches at the time that were spoken of in those seven cities of Asia Minor, but they also discuss periods of church history that can be equated to the attitudes and the what God said about the seven churches that have been parts of Christian history and uh, that's a real big study in itself. Yes, as we proceed you will find that there are characteristics of these churches which apply to the Christian church in general at different stages throughout the years. Nick? Yeah, I was just going to mention that um, even though there is a application in both aspects, you know, like uh, literal death for that time and also prophetically, John may not have been understood at that time that refers to our time. He was writing down what he received from God for the churches which he knew about. And those are the churches in, um, in that region which we talked about. Now, interesting enough that Lija mentioned that there were some more churches than those seven churches, but these seven churches were very, um, maybe, let's say, important uh, churches and also with different issues, different characteristics of each one of these churches. And John was seeing and make sense for him as God approached the situation of those churches in that time. But also because we know that the book of Revelation is a prophetic book, then the application of this message is for all times. I guess one could say that those churches typified other churches at that time, maybe in the same areas, but they also typified churches down through history. Yes, Harvey? I think we have to carry it a little further than that too because if we look into the message of the seven churches which we will be doing, not necessarily this week but we'll be certainly doing in our study in the next couple of weeks and that is that it also can be applied to each of us individually. We can look at aspects of the churches and say that's my problem or that's an issue I have and so it can be applied individually as well. Okay, well done, we'll move on. Ken, would you read Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 right through to 18 please, and I'm going to ask some questions about this straight afterwards. So again we're reading from the uh, King James Version, starting verse 12. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girth about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. 
and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive for evermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. All right. Thank you, Ken. So John, as you read, turned to hear who was speaking. And who did he see? Well, he actually saw Jesus Christ. Yes, the word, the terminology in the Bible which I'm using here at the moment is the NIV. It says, one like the Son of Man. Yes, it was Jesus dressed as a high priest. All right, now where was he standing? Okay. He was standing in the middle of the seven candlesticks. Okay, uh, another version puts the candlesticks, it says lampstands, but it means the same thing. Lydia, what do lampstands represent in the, according to what Ken just read? Yeah, metaphorically, the lampstands represents the seven churches that are already mentioned uh, and the people those churches represent. The lampstands are used to support and hold up burning candles to provide light. So in the Bible, light is used as a symbol of the truth. Uh, we observed here in the Bible in uh, Revelation 1, 12, 18 that the picture that we see is Jesus dressed as a high priest walking among the lampstands. So this points to God's promise to ancient Israel that he would walk among them as their God. In Revelation, the lampstands represent the seven churches in Asia to which... Uh, revelation was originally sent and the lampstands also symbolize God's church throughout the history as Harvey mentioned through the Holy Spirit Jesus watch care continues to be over his church on earth also he will be continually uh, with his people until he brings them to their eternal home but Moreover, the picture of Jesus as high priest among the lampstands is drawn from the ritual practice in the Jerusalem temple because the daily task of an appointed priest was to keep the lamps in the holy place burning brightly. He would trim and refill the lamps that were waning, replace the wicks on the lamps that he had uh, gone out, refill them with fresh oil, and then relight them. In such a way, the priest become acquainted personally with the situation of each individual lamp. Exactly in the same way, Jesus is acquainted with the needs and circumstances of his people and intercedes for them personally, which I is very Amazing. Okay, well, just we just backtrack a little bit. The lampstands were used to hold the lights, the the lamps, and the lamp uh, light 
represents truth. The lampstands represent the churches. So what conclusion can, can we draw, therefore, about the church? The church is for proclamation of truth in the past, present and the future. Okay, so while some of you, as you read this, might not understand it, really it's all symbolic to show that the lampstands with the church which is supposed to disseminate truth, truth about God, truth about his word, truth about the coming of Jesus. I'd like to also mention something which I believe is very significant. Those seven churches, they were representing, as you point out, Len, uh, the truth, the light, which Jesus himself, being on this earth, distributed, if you like, through his teachings and through the disciples and as they establish churches around these churches were some of those churches with which were responsible to shining that light and that's very important for us today even the reason why we are doing these bible studies is because we are called by god to stand for the truth to represent that light which Jesus gave us through the Bible and we are going to bring the Bible to the attention of everyone because there we can get the inspiring you know words of God and the light of the truth which is uh, which is necessarily that's what we're all about okay Harvey that description that Ken read could you please describe the dress and appearance of the being who spoke. Yes, it describes in the Bible that he had pure white hair, blazing eyes, bronze-coloured feet, loud voice he spoke with, right hand held seven stars, and from his mouth a double-edged sword. His face was shining brightly. Can you just... There's one other thing about the dress... What sort of clothes did he wear? He wore a robe, as did the high priest. And so that was one of the things that was really important. It was a full-length robe and a golden sash he also wore. Okay, so what's all the significance of these things? The robe, the hair, the eyes, etc., etc. Would you be able to just explain to our listeners what the significance is? I think the robes, as I said, represented the high priest because it was significant in the, the priestly services. White hair spoke of the Ancient of Days as another terminology given to God. Blazing eyes, an expression of his glory and, and power. His feet, they were strong. They powerfully carried the message of salvation. The seven stars in his hands were the messages going out, the angels going out to the seven churches. The stars themselves were the, the message to the seven churches. The sword spoke of judgment. The, the sword in the Bible always speaks of judgment, judges people's thoughts, motives. His face was pure and radiant. It shone purity. But also, you know, in the Bible we have... Um 
many passages and scripture, you know, to understand. For example, the armor of God. In Ephesians, when you read about the armor of God, you'll see quite few of these characteristics here. Now, myself, I just want to pick one, just to talk a little bit about that one. For example, talking about um, white hair, and as uh, Harvey just pointed out, that symbolizes the ancient of days, you know. Now, we don't need to picture God being a God with long white hair, just because of this verse. The, uh, this is talking in a language that we may understand who is talking. It's talking somebody who's from the beginning. You know, and we as people, we understand when somebody is lo- for a long time here, he most probably will have white hair. <laughs> okay. All right, Ken, who did this being who was doing the speaking describe himself as? The answer is found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Starting in 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And of course, again here, we're talking about Jesus. Okay, so those des- that description fits Jesus. Lydia, in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18, there is a name attached to the being among the lampstands. Would you read that and just uh, highlight what it says? These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burning, burnished bronze. So it means it's the Son of God. Okay. The Son of God is a, ty- is a term uh, that Jesus accepted. Another term that he accepted was the Son of Man. Now, Harvey also spoke there about that this being held the keys of Hades and death. Would you read, please, Matthew sixteen nineteen, and then follow that with Matthew eighteen eighteen, because there's another mention of keys here. Sure, and uh, this is Jesus speaking. In verse 19 it says, And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And Matthew eighteen eighteen, Jesus was speaking to the disciples. Yes, and Matthew eighteen eighteen says, Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Okay, so what are these keys, therefore, that Jesus uh, gave, if you like, to the disciples? I think basically the keys are the gospel. The whole um, concept of the gospel are the keys of heaven because it's the keys of salvation that we have. Yes. I just want to also mention another thing here, talking about the keys of heaven. The Bible says that the truth will set you free, which on the, on the reverse of the problem, if you misbehave, to say the, in this way, you'll be locked out of heaven. Now, the concept, and I'll mention here something important, there is church which they believe that they have the rights 
because they said they are coming from Apostle Peter, to whom was given from Jesus this uh, message that uh, you'll have the keys of heaven, you know. The keys of heaven are always associated with the truth. And if whoever believes that they have that right, I'm talking here the Catholic Church, the reason I'm saying that because through the priesthood of the church, they believe that people need to come before the priest to uh, confess and to do all the things, then they may have access to heaven. And unfortunately, this church is not representing the truth of the Bible. All right, thank you. Also, we observe here that Jesus identifies himself with the titles of God as the first and the last. Um, and uh, it's the Greek word for the last is eschatos, from which the word eschatology, uh, which it means the study of end times events, comes. So the meaning of this word shows that the focus of eschatology is on Jesus Christ, who has the last word of final events, because he is the one who lives and possesses the keys of hates and of death. So, by his death and resurrection, Jesus has been given the authority to open the gates of death, and all who trust in him will rise from the grave to everlasting life. Okay, so Lydia, would you therefore read now, please, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and hates. Okay, now back with the uh, in the time when Jesus walked the earth, he said, "I give you." And he's talking to Peter and the other disciples. I give you the keys of the kingdom. Now he says, "I hold the keys of death and Hades." What did he actually mean, Lydia? As I said. He holds the keys of Hades and death. It means that he conquered the death. He was risen. So it means that through his death and resurrection, he gives the authority of to open the gates of death. And he has the authority to give us also eternal life. So we will have the promise that even the dead are under his watch care. And... Uh, if that is so with the dead, how much more is with that with the living? Because he 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 holds the keys of of the dead and hates and and the life. So he holds the, all the keys okay. in his hands. Well, look, just to put it very simply, you know, in in these words, um, when we talk about the keys, uh, we're talking about that Jesus. If we preach the truth, which represents Jesus, then we're using those keys, if you like. He's the one who holds the keys, and we are, because men, uh, in these days, they think that they are able to put together some man-made tradition and rules and regulations that we need to follow. We are not about to follow any of man's tradition, but to follow God's truth, and then we'll use the keys are in our hands. The point I really wanted to make here was that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom, the truth of the gospel, to the disciples and by um, implication to all his followers. But he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. And I see that this way. 
Jesus will be the ultimate judge. Nobody else can do that. He hasn't given that right to human beings, and as Nick was talking about what happens with the Roman Catholic Church, how they say, we have the right, but no, Jesus alone has the right to judge, and therefore he alone holds the keys of death and Hades. I think it's interesting that in the Bible there are a number of stories about people being raised from the dead. Now they were all raised from the dead through the power of God, um, through people perhaps, but in actual fact Jesus said he was different. He won the victory over death and Hades because he said, I can lay down my life and I can take it up again. So life, he has life in himself, which no, none of the others that were raised from the dead could have. So he, he truly was victorious over death. Mm. Okay, all right, let's move on. Ken, would you read Revelation chapter 1, verse 20? Perhaps read it first, then I'll ask you the question. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks or lampshades the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches okay so the the speaker here gives an interpretation what do you think of that expression the angels of the churches means well, I believe that points out to the heavenly messengers. Could it refer to anybody else? Could refer to earthly messengers. Okay, so it might refer to actual angels with messages. It refers to people of the churches. This will include ministers and people like that who will uh, share the message of God. And it also is perhaps referring to the prevailing attitudes, if you like, the the spirit, the the feeling within the church that um, explains that. Well, then, uh, just because you asked the question about what the angels represent, I mean, uh, an angel represents, it's a messenger. Now, everyone who brings the uh, truth of the gospel to the attention of anybody, he's a messenger mm. from God. Mm. And that's what uh, it's important to to understand that we are doing the work of the angels as we represent the truth. Yes, Kate. Um, I'd just like to add something to that I think is really important. We, we talk about different people uh, coming with the message of the Lord, but I think it's really critical that people actually read the Bible themselves and not necessarily trust everything that they hear. True. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, Harvey, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2, 9, 13, and 19, is a common expression. What is it, and why is that expression significant? In verse 2, it says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. In verse 9, it says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich, and I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. 
Then we go to verse 13. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And finally in verse 19, I know your works, love, service, faith and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So what's the expression? I know. God knows all about us. And it's an expression. He's looking into the seven churches and he says, I know what is happening. I know what you are doing. And that's why he was able to give the message he did. So is it a good or a bad thing? Well, I think it's a good thing. Yes. Because if God knows, you know, he knows everything. So if we understand that, we will put God in his proper place. To be a human being, Jesus knows what it's like to be a human being. In fact, we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are so he knows and this is a comfort i mean if he didn't know then maybe the mistakes the giving in to temptations and so on that human beings make would not be treated with gentleness and kindness as it is because Christ knows alright well now we're going to um, look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19 and this is before we I think the last one before we move to Revelation chapter 2 Lydia would you read that verse Revelation one nineteen? yes it was said to John right Therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So, um, these messages for the seven churches are, they have application, uh, a historical application, a prophetic application, and, uh, and a universal application. And also, they are applicable to the early Christian time period in Asian Manor time and also it's applicable to also to us in our days and to the future times and future people. Okay, yes, that's right. We were discussing this earlier in the program. The the message was um, directed, if you like, at those seven churches, but it also include other churches, churches through future and individuals through future time. Right, Ken? Now we're in chapter 2 and we are having a look at the message that was given to the first church, Ephesus. Would you read Revelation 2 verses 1 through to 4? Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, I know thy works, and thy labour, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast laboured, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, 
I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. All right, so there are two things that get addressed here. Certain things are commanded. If you remember getting a school report, maybe your teacher said, so-and-so is good at doing this, is trying his hardest or her hardest, blah, blah, blah. And then there might be something else. But, um, and I'll leave that to your imagination, what was commended there, Ken? Well, there's a number of things. There was hard work, perseverance, intolerance of wicked people and their schemes, and they tested deceivers and rejected them. They endured, endured many hardships without giving up, and they just kept their eye on Jesus. All right. So, I mean, if this was a report card, if you like, given to me and my Christian experience, I'd be quite happy to read that. And then what was criticised, Ken? Well, the report criticised that they had forsaken their first love. So what's that mean? It means they had uh, lost the great desire for Jesus. Okay, I guess... Wouldn't you agree, Harvey, that they had lost a certain amount of their initial zeal? Yes, I suppose we could say that they lost their enthusiasm for the truth in the way that they had it at the beginning. And we could say because they lost that, they had less doctrinal purity. We can use the equivalence of, say, a marriage. When you marry somebody and you're really keen, everything's so great, and as, as the weeks and months go by, it becomes more taking each other for granted. And that's really what it's talking about here. It was a case of it became ho-hum, just form rather than reality. So even though they were still given a very positive report card, as we see later on, others didn't get quite as good a report card. Okay, well, you know, you, you use this marriage analogy, and I think that's a great analogy. Uh, there's one person in this panel who, after 10 years of marriage, went across to Bali and renewed his and his wife renewed her marriage vows, which I thought was really lovely. And also I would like to mention that uh, even though, we, you know, with this... Um, illustrations about marriage and so on uh, it's important to understand that the truth it's forever the same never changes even though people are saying sometimes we live in different culture different times different uh, context it's true that we live in different times but the truth is the same always and if we don't watch to stay closer to God's teachings then we can be rebuked as these people were rebuked even though they were still at the beginning when in their memory they were still fresh some of those teachings you know imagine what do you reckon in which time do we live as a prophetic period from those seven churches well not this one this is the early one we live in this, the last one and, and if we we'll mention what says about the message to the last uh, church, we'll see very easily the situation we live in. I just want to mention that uh, um, it's very important to stay closer to the truth of the Bible rather than to 
make applications, uh, believing that, you know, we should be um, like this or like that because this is different. I remember somebody said to me in some aspects one day, he said, oh, come on, Nick, we are not back in the 50s. Yeah. You know, it's true. We were not back in the 50s. We were in the, in the 21st centuries. But the truth is the same, like in back in the 50s or back in the first century. I, I think, Nick, that's a good point. Uh, I think it really comes back to the fact that God's standards haven't changed, only human beings. Yes, that's a good point. Well, a rebuke is given where there's something wrong. Praise is given where something is right. And... Uh, for what you do right, you don't need to um, be g'd up, I suppose would be the expression, to uh, keep on doing right. But where there's things wrong, you need to change. What counsel is given to the church, the uh, church of Ephesus? Ledger? Yes, in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We have a warning here, a warning to remember, to repent, and to return. And if nothing we changes, we, uh, we will not be longer um, God's witnesses. Okay. Now... Um there's a mention there of the Nicolaitans, and I'm sure some people want to know what on earth is this all about. Nicolaitans apparently were followers of a Nicholas. Nicholas was one of the twelve deacons chosen by the early church. He came from a pagan background. He didn't come from a Jewish background. And it appears that within the church a sort of a offshoot um, developed where they did things that were reprehensible to God, including what they call, well, we would call free sex. And uh, this was not approved by the early church, and God did commend the church because of their rejection of that particular sect. The promise, the promise given, Ken, was what? The promise was whosoever overcomes these things which include obviously temptations doing evil mediocrity having a, a hit and miss thing towards things backsliding uh, falling away from the church and not doing what you should perhaps uh, will be given eternal life okay well you can see there's uh, appraising there's a pointing out of the things that were no good in the church. There was reproof and rebuke, but also a promise, which I think was a wonderful way to treat the church. Now, Harvey, how would this last promise be applicable to us? That's us as a panel and the listeners who are listening today. Simply, if we follow the way of truth, 
and make sure that we do through the power given to us by God, then we can accept also the promise that he gave that we will eventually be given eternal life when Jesus comes again. Okay, and that is a good note to end on. But before we do, I just want to point out that next week we'll look at the messages of Jesus to some of the other churches. Those messages apply specifically to those apostolic churches, but a parallel, as we've previously discussed, can be seen in the Christian church through time and even in the life of an individual Christian. Join us, won't you? for this exciting study from God's Holy Word as we look deeper into the revelation of Jesus Christ. And before we close, Harvey, would you pray for us and the listeners? Sure. We thank you, Lord, that we can study your Word. We thank you that the Holy Spirit can be here with us. He caused the Word to be written in the first place and we know that he can enlighten our minds. So I ask you that you will be with each of us individually, not just the ones here on the panel, but more especially those that are listening. We pray that your Holy Spirit will give them the strength, the courage and the will to study more and to find out more about the wonderful truths that you have in the Bible for them. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Harvey, and thank you, panel, for uh, uh, all this uh, uh, wonderful, uh, you know, talk and discuss about this amazing book, Revelation. And I would like to invite our listeners to open the Bible, uh, this last book, and uh, look into it and write down things uh, as we talk about. And as you may have questions, you can always uh, approach us with your questions and we'll be happy to... Uh, to answer some of them, even though maybe the questions will not come in time, but uh, when we'll get the questions, we'll find the time to, to answer. May God bless you. Until next time, God be with you.